Well, this morning as we open our service and as we have been worshiping together, I have been struck with great gratitude for the opportunity I have to gather together with my fellow believers here at Elk Point Baptist Church. Many of you will have noticed that I am missing my entire row full of children and my my family is going on their third week of not being able to have all of us here because we've all been sick in one matter or another. And Sherry commented to me yesterday as we were making the call of, do we think we could maybe make it? And decided that it probably wasn't wise to come and share the illness that's had us down for so long. Sherry said to me, she's like, I can't remember the last time where it's been three weeks that I haven't gotten to gather together, where I haven't gotten to gather with the body of believers and share in worship. And it's a, it's a difficult thing, and it's also incredibly encouraging that we here have the opportunity to say we haven't gone a month without gathering with our brothers and sisters, and that we can gather in a such a privileged way where we are here on top of the hill for all to see, where we can gather and sing together, we can broadcast online what we're doing and everything that we're saying, and I can speak from this pulpit the truth of God's Word without, usually without fear of government reprisal. But what a blessing it is that we can gather together and worship in this way. And I am so, so incredibly grateful that we can do it and that we can take advantage of this. And I would encourage each one of us to foster in our hearts that kind of gratitude. And I look around and I know that all of us have things that we could be doing on a Sunday morning. There's a football game this afternoon. We could be getting ready for that, making snacks. It's November 19th. That means we've got 11 days left in hunting season for those who are counting. You could be sitting out in the bush. We have chores to do at home. We have work to do around the house. We have family to visit. We have many quote-unquote good reasons to find other things to do. And yet here we sit this morning gathered together as a body of believers because we have taken and we have seen and we are aware that what we get coming here is of far greater value than anything else we could be doing this morning. Not just hearing the word. You can sit on your couch and hear the word. You can listen to any manner of good preachers but to gather with family, to strengthen and equip and encourage and build one another up in such a way that God would be glorified and we would be equipped to share his word as we go about our lives is an incredible blessing and one for which we may be very thankful. So that is my little thank you to God and also thank you that God has inspired in our hearts a willingness and a desire to know his word. So now we get to come to his word, and for those of us who are looking or would be using the Pew Bibles, we are still on page three of our Pew Bibles, looking in the book of Genesis. We're going to be in Genesis chapter three again today. And as we get started, I know many of us were missing last week due to illness, but uh, I'll call to your mind the hypothetical scenario that we were dealing with last week. If you weren't here, the refresher is basically you have a group of kids out in the backyard playing baseball, and you hear them playing, and then all of a sudden you hear a window break. Maybe you see a window break, and then all of a sudden you don't hear the children anymore. And as a parent, you have options as to how you respond and by God's grace, I hope we arrived at a place of clarity last week that God's response to his children's sin, 
to the disobedience of Adam and Eve was not to come in swift, although it would have been just retribution. It was not to treat them with silent and righteous judgment, but it was to call his people to confession, to call his people to be reconciled and brought into right relationship with him. From Adam and Eve, God, in a loving and yet unyielding manner, extracted a personal confession of sin, I ate. The confessions may have been couched and qualified, I ate, but but they confessed that they had eaten of the tree that they had been commanded not to eat. And he did so that both Adam and Eve would be suited for continued relationship with God because they have admitted their fault, their sin before him. Although that their relationship with him would be forever changed. But just like the kid who breaks the window with a baseball, just because they've confessed their sin doesn't mean there isn't going to be consequences. And it is with the consequences, might I say, the fruit of Adam and Eve's disobedience to which they confessed, they confessed that they'd eaten this fruit, it is with the consequences of those actions with which we are concerned this morning. And just as importantly, we are concerned with the promises that God weaves into those consequences. And the consequences we're looking at are not the natural consequences of their actions. We've already seen those. Before God pronounced any judgment against Adam and Eve's sin, they were already alienated from each other and alienated from God. They immediately had shame. They knew that they were naked. They were covering themselves, hiding from God. Those were just the natural consequences of their action and their sin. But there are more consequences than just the natural consequences. God doesn't leave them just to the natural consequences of their sin. God is a just God. He is who he is, and he is just in all ways. And his law still had demands that needed to be satisfied. The consequences we are looking at today are specific and just, even legal sentences that were imposed as judgments upon the guilty parties. So I'd invite you to turn with me to chapter 3 of Genesis, and we will read beginning, starting in verse 14 and down to verse 21. Again, Genesis 3, 14 to 21, page 3 on your pew Bibles if you're looking. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return." The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. This is God's word. If you were looking and paying attention last week as we went through this confession saga, you probably would have noticed that there is a player that is absent from the list. 
Why is the serpent not called to confession? Why is Adam and Eve called by God to confession? Why does God go through the process of saying, you need to come and what have you done? But the serpent receives no such call. And that is because the serpent has been judged already. He will not be reconciled to God. He has wholly rejected God's authority. And as such, his confession is irrelevant. Confession here is God's means of initiating reconciliation with his people. God initiates reconciliation with man. But the serpent, Satan, is not eligible. At this point, we're going to look at this judgment of the first transgressor, the serpent. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. There has been no end of speculation about the first part of that judgment in verse 14. Did snakes once have limbs? With the description in chapter 3, verse 1, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Was this actually Satan? Was this just a talking snake? Did all animals talk? Is that why Eve doesn't seem surprised that there's a talking snake? And while these are very interesting trails to walk, great veins to mine when we do our in-depth study, putting finer points on our understanding of Scripture. To get hung up on those details is to lose the forest for the trees. Some 31 times in the Old Testament, we have rep references to serpents. And in each instance, these serpents are treated with contempt or as symbols of judgment. Did snakes once have limbs? Maybe. Is God more than capable of removing limbs from snakes and saying, now you crawl on your belly? Absolutely. Did he? Maybe. But regardless of how the details played out and the specifics of exactly how God did what he did, as God has often done throughout his word, the serpent, the physical snake that we can see sunning itself on the highway, maybe not right now, but a few months ago, the serpent has become this potent visual reminder for people across time of the conflict between man and not just snakes. There are plenty of people who don't like snakes, and that's fair enough. But our conflict is not against snakes. Our conflict is against an adversary who prowls around like a roaring lion who would seek to devour us, the enemy of our souls, Satan. And it is the second half of this passage in 14 and 15 that makes it clear that this is not just any serpent. Because while since the fall there has and will be this adversarial relationship between mankind and snakes, snakes were at one point part of the creation that God called good and very good. Snakes themselves are not evil, contrary to what some of you might think. When we're looking at verse 15, we realize this is no ordinary snake, whether it is Satan who has physically taken on the form of a snake, whether he has possessed a snake, whatever you want to try and figure out there, we have this clarity that this is no ordinary snake. And as you read it, if you were to look in the original languages and even in our English, you can see that there's this variety of tenses back and forth between singular and plural. And it encompasses, we have this greater conflict. Mankind generally doesn't like snakes. But there's this singular language in the very last sentence that should really make things clear for us. Eve's offspring and the serpent's offspring gives way to he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel, singular. 
And verse 15 here is what's often referred to in Christian literature as proto-evangelium, which literally translated means first gospel. This is the first real picture that we have that there is something coming, that there is a gospel to look forward to. The Old Testament as a whole and all of human history from this moment in the fall all the way to the resurrection of Christ, there's this sense of waiting. Something is coming. There's something that needs to happen here to set things right. There's this promise that this perpetual enmity between Eve and the serpent and her offspring and his offspring would one day come to a head and there'd be this culminating conflict, specifically this seeds conflict, the seed of the woman. Not with serpents in general. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This seed would be wounded, hence the bruising of the heel, but the mortal blow would belong to the seed against the serpent, his head being bruised. And the word here for bruise, there's a reason why many of us would be familiar with bruise and crush being interchangeable here because the language is such that it can be translated both ways, but we have the seed's heel being bruised because that is not a a mortal wound. This is an attack that, yes, it injures him, but does not mortal wound him. But then we have the head of the serpent being bruised or crushed. And there is, there's multiple stories, as we will see all throughout these first 11 chapters of Genesis, multiple storylines going on. We have the immediate blinders on, tunnel vision storyline, and then you bring it out and it gets bigger and bigger. We have mankind versus snakes. We have the specific seed, Christ, versus the specific serpent, Satan. And then we also have the corporate seed, the church, the seed of Christ, under whose feet we are told in Scripture Satan would be trampled. So we have this Satan and Christ, and then we also have the church and Satan's adversaries and his armies in the world that Satan would command. And in all of these, the promised expectation that we have to look forward to if we are faithful in Christ is that the serpent would be conquered. The downfall of the serpent is assured even from the very first moment of his seeming victory. There is a judgment and a promise contained with the curse upon the serpent in our passage that the serpent's end is destruction. He does not and cannot win. And notice that on the list of the three transgressors, it is only the serpent who is personally cursed. Cursed are you. For he has personally and unrepentantly rejected and defied the Lord. Again, he is not called towards redemption, for according to the Lord's decree, his end will be destruction, that he would be thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur. If we look at our next transgressor, Eve, before we even reach her, we already have in the serpent's curse a promise couched in there that Eve would be blessed with offspring. But now look at verse 16. To the woman he said, this is the Lord, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. To Eve and Adam we see God announce both kind of a consequence for and an outcome of their sin. And what I mean when I make this distinction is that God says to Eve, he's going to multiply her pain in childbearing. I will surely, God says. That's a direct 
imposed consequence or judgment from God against the woman. But as a result of Eve's sin, not only is she being subjected to a divinely imposed consequence, there's also this resulting outcome of her sin that she must now contend with. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Both Adam and Eve's divinely imposed consequences and sin-induced outcomes directly relate to their created roles. Eve was created by God as a helper to Adam, as a suitable helper for him was not found, as we can read in chapter 2. And the role for which they were created, if we look back at 128, and the mandate for the man and the woman was to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. A mandate for which Adam could not that Adam could not attain to. He required a helper. He was inadequate to that task on his own. Someone fit for him, someone capable of being fruitful and multiplying the human race. And Eve was created by God as that perfect helper. She was designed perfectly by God that she would be able to allow mankind to multiply and in doing so bring glory to God and share his glory as they take it throughout all the earth. And we have this seemingly intentional reference. The woman is commanded, be fruitful and multiply. And right off of that, be fruitful and multiply, we have that same thing. God will now multiply her pain in childbearing. Her judgment is directly tied to her creative purpose. Interestingly, the word childbearing, if we're being in the strictest sense, refers to just the conception of a child. And given the fact that the conception of a child is not typically something associated with pain, the context here is expanded as we understand it. It's not just the conception of a child. It's usually expanded to mean childbirth, the actual bearing of a child. But seeing the mandate given by God to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and have dominion over it, bearing forth God's image and extending his rule through their offspring, the mother's pain appears not only to be limited to the conception of and birthing of children, but also just her role as a mother in bearing and raising children. What was to be not only painless, but indeed the greatest joy of a woman's life in bearing and raising children that would extend God's image and glory throughout all the earth, it will remain the greatest possible joy, but it also comes laced at every stage with the sharpest of pains. No longer is Eve able to fulfill her role unfettered and through medical advances and what we have now, we can control and even totally remove the physical pain of childbirth. And that itself leads me to believe that this divine consequence goes ju beyond just birth pains because God, well aware that one day mankind would figure out the drugs and the epidurals and the whatever else to remove the physical pain of childbirth, It extends far beyond that because man has never been able to avoid the consequences that God has levied against them, although we do try our best to mitigate them. Anyways, Eve can no longer fulfill this role without these painful reminders of the consequences of her willingness to turn from God's commandments. Also, her role of helping and supporting and caring for and loving her husband, bone of her bones and flesh of her flesh, one flesh with him as he is with her, that role too would be affected. Now her desire would be contrary to her husband, but he would rule over her. Returning to that role that Eve was given, she was to be a helper supporting Adam and not leading him he was given authority that he would even be able to name her. I shall call this woman, for she was made out of man. But Eve's rebellion starts 
even before the first bite of the fruit, casting off the instruction that she had received to not eat or even touch the fruit, Eve takes the lead, both touching and eating and bringing it to Adam and encouraging him and effectively leading him rather than being led by him. And he does, she does not submit to his leadership. And this, her desire being contrary to him, but he would rule over her, that crops up again and gives form to how we understand this. One chapter forward in chapter 4, verse 7. There we have the story of Cain and Abel. And God is talking to Cain when Cain is so upset and frustrated that his offering was not accepted by God. And God tells Cain, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire, same word, is contrary to you, but you must rule, same word, over it. Eve would desire to rule over her husband, to usurp the God-given role of leadership in the marriage relationship, even as she had done at the serpent's temptation, and Adam would then rule over her. And when we hear that rule over her, we have, again, this two-part thing going on where one, we do and we can see now that the rulership, the leadership of man has been corrupted and what is meant to be a loving and kind and benevolent leadership of the home is now often domineering and abusive and negative. But there's still an affirmation there that that design for man's leadership still stands. She would desire to rule over her husband, but he would rule over her. Just because she wants to flip the script doesn't mean that that changes what God had designed. To sum up Eve's consequence, the late Dr. John Salehammer said, the woman and her husband were to have enjoyed the blessing of children and the harmonious partnership of marriage. The judgment relates precisely at these two points. What the woman was once to do as a blessing, be a marriage partner and have children, has become tainted. In those moments of life's greatest blessing, marriage and children, the woman would sense most clearly the painful consequences of her rebellion before God. And yet... Even in these judgments, the purpose is not just punitive. She's going to know what she did to me. And that's what a lot of people think of when they think of God, that God's just up there with a magnifying glass and smiting people because he doesn't like them. The whole point of this judgment upon the woman is to point the woman back to God, to remind her of the consequences of disobedience and whom she ought to obey and to call her back to confess and be restored to right relationship with him. And for Adam, too, his consequences are directly tied to his commission, to his role. To Adam, God said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Adam was created to take dominion over the earth, to exercise God's authority over it. We discussed in an earlier message in the creation narrative how Adam was created with this desire and this purpose to work and to work hard and work for God's glory. He was not simply created to just laze about the garden, but to work and to keep and to care for it and to protect it. He was given purpose and the fulfillment of his purpose was to be of the greatest personal fulfillment for him. He was doing what he was created to do for the glory of God. But now that fulfillment, just as for Eve, will now be laced with pain, 
with sweat and toil. He was placed in the garden where to eat, he simply had to reach up and pick from the tree. But now he would eat by the sweat of his brow and the toil of his body. God would frustrate his ability to accomplish that which he was created for and would be most fulfilling for him. There's a reason why men are typically most satisfied and joyful when they are working hard. When you get a group of guys together and say, we're all going to do this big task together and we all get, (laughs) and we go and we do it and we're all excited and we work through this thing and it feels good. And that's one of the best ways that we as men typically bond with one another, working at something and working hard. We are made to strive and to work for God's glory, but it's also the reason why men are most frustrated by their work. They take a look at their work and see the futileness of some of what they do, and they go, why isn't this working? Why our work is going to drive us insane, and also why some men are simply just going to be tempted to just avoid work altogether become the man-child in the mom's basement with the video games and go, I'm not going to do any work at all because I don't like it. It's frustrating and it bugs me. Too bad that's not what you were created for. But as a consequence for our disobedience, our work, which was designed to be a blessing, is now subject to frustration. But again, that frustration is meant to point us back towards God and go, the reason why this is so hard, the reason why my work is unfulfilling, the reason why what I'm doing doesn't seem to work, the reason why is because I have disobeyed God, my forefather has disobeyed God, and I need to turn back to him. And that doesn't mean that you become a Christian and you pray the right prayers to God and all of a sudden everything's going to be sunshine and roses. We still await things being totally set right. We are in, if we are in Christ, we are in the already but not yet where we have been saved. We see the beginning of the curse being lifted, but the fullness of the curse will not be lifted until Christ returns. And the outcome of Adam's sin is such that although the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature, now that same living creature would one day return to the dust that he was created from. God's commandment to Adam from the very beginning was that of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. And just as the Lord has said, now it will come to pass. The day that Adam ate of that tree, death entered into the world through Adam, By God's grace, and only by God's grace, Adam does not suffer immediate physical death, but Adam began dying. Each one of us right now is dying. It's just a matter of how quickly or how far along the process we are. Our mortality is guaranteed, provided that Jesus does not return first. Adam is condemned that he would indeed return to the dust. And Lord willing, next week, we will take a look at how that process is worked out and the fact that it is actually good that it was worked out as it was. But we'll get there. As we close our passage this morning, there's this particularly hopeful note that it ends on in verses 20 and 21. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Here Eve finally receives her name. I've been calling her Eve all the way along, but up until now she was just woman. But she receives her name and Adam again takes a measure of authority as he was designed to do. It's Just as he called her woman, now he calls her Eve. There's the authority of the man there. He calls her woman for she was taken out of man and he called her name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. 
And that name that Adam gives her is in itself an incredible vote of faith and confidence in the Lord's promises. Even looking at the judgment that God just leveled against Adam and Eve and how heartbreaking and painful all of that would have been, Adam does respond in faith saying, God, you have promised. The Lord said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. She would have offspring. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. There is this promise there, and Adam says, we're going to have kids. We are going to have a family, and somehow through that family, there is a promise that God is going to set things right. God announces these consequences and the attending results of man and woman's sin and their unfaithfulness and their rejection of his rulership over their lives. And yet, even in this oracle of judgment, God blesses them, promising children to them that their role in God's design and their future was not yet at an end. God was more than capable of just clearing the slate and saying, I'm going to start with a new man and woman once you two die. But he did not do that. He did not write them off. He did not cast them out. He did not destroy them entirely. He promises a hope and a future and a child and a seed and the crushing of the serpent. Their role in God's design was not done. One of their seed, born of a woman and notably not of a man, by her seed, mankind would be saved. This would bring an end to this judgment. And then foreshadowing the whole sacrificial system that we're going to get in the rest of Genesis and foreshadowing the coming of Christ, which itself was foreshadowed by the sacrificial system, the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. How many of us are wearing today garments composed entirely of skins? I don't see any of us clad in full leather gear here today. Was God capable of making their garments out of flax or just taking the wool off of a sheep or cotton or absolutely. But their garments are made out of skins. An animal, we know that skins come from animals, an animal had to give its life that Adam and Eve might be clothed. And today with our 2020 hindsight, we have this vision to know that the spotless Lamb of God gave His life to take away the sins of His people that we might be once again clothed. Though now not with skin, but with the perfect clothing of righteousness which He gives us. I cannot in good conscience, as is so often done read the passage this morning and see a God intent on this punitive judgment of these wicked people. Our God is not up there angry and mad. I am going to get you. Our God looks at them and calls them to confession. Our God looks at them and gives them a righteous and just judgment. He does not let their sin go unpunished but even there he loves them. You are going to have children, and through that children, this will be handled. You find yourself naked in the garden, and I am going to clothe you. Our God is not a God who takes pleasure in the death of the wicked, but instead he is a God that would have the wicked turn from their way and live. God draws Adam and Eve to confession. He maintains their relationship with him. He pronounces this judge judgment, but he still promises a hope and a future. God begins restoration even here at the doorstep of their sin. 
They are not left gathering leaves to cover their shame, but clothed and expectant of a day of reconciliation. And brothers and sisters, the commandments given to Adam and Eve in the garden still stand. We are still called to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Still today, we leave our father and our mother and hold fast to our spouse, becoming one flesh. Men are still called to work and to lead and to protect and do all of the things that Adam was supposed to do before he fell into sin. Women are still called to love and help and encourage and strengthen and care for their husbands and to be the only ones who can bring children into the world to be fruitful, and to do all of the things that Eve was called to do before she was deceived and fell into sin. And today we are going to do these things attended by day-to-day and moment-to-moment reminders of the fallenness of our world. If you have children, there will not be a day where you will not remember through the actions of your children of the disobedience of Adam and Eve. And if you are reminded of the disobedience of Adam and Eve, the next step, you should be reminded of your own disobedience. Or we disobey just as he did. We still hold our original purpose. We are still called to glorify God in the world by the commandments and the reasons for our creation for which we are created with our original purpose and design in mind that we would glorify God and to extol his name wherever he would place us and take us, bearing his image and his likeness wherever men and women of faith might be found. And now, something that Adam and Eve didn't have the privilege of We can do these things not just dreaming and imagining what this reconciliation of God and man might look like. But with eyes wide open, we can know that what Paul taught in Romans 8 is true of those who are in Christ Jesus. Creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Which hope? What is the hope that Paul is referring to here? It is the greatest news that any of us could ever receive, the news that is the fulfillment of the promise that God gave Adam and Eve in the garden as he brought judgment upon them to ultimately end the conflict between the serpent and the seed of the woman. That there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. The law of sin and death that reigned from Adam. That law is no longer in force for those who are in Christ Jesus. For those who are in Christ Jesus, there's the law of the spirit of life that we have been set free. That Christ has died in our place. That another lamb has been slain and we might be clothed with righteousness even as Adam and Eve were clothed with skins. Our God has finished the work of redemption that he set about at the very instance of our disobedience. I don't know about you, but the instant of my child's disobedience is not when I'm feeling the most charitable towards them and yet our God is good and so much greater than we are as parents. And at the very second when his heart was broken by the disobedience of his perfect creation. He sets about the work of redemption, 
which in the end would cost the life of his own son, Jesus. That death that Adam began dying the moment that he sinned foreshadowed the death of the second Adam, Jesus Christ, who he would die once and for all for those who would be found in Christ Jesus, who would their hope and their faith and their confession would be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise God. That is why we are here today and not hunting. That is why we are here today and not preparing for a football game. That is why we are here today and not working on the million tasks we have at home. That is why we gather to worship because we have good reason to worship because our God has done a great thing. And we get to preach that to one another here. And we can't do that from the couch. If we are in Christ, confessing him as Lord and obeying his commandments, our end is not death and death eternal, but life and life eternal with our Lord. All glory to God. O oh Lord, our God, none of us, not one of us, not even Adam and Eve, deserve your mercy and your grace. We are all of us wicked. Even our righteous deeds are laced with our own pride and our own desire for self and our own sin. We do not deserve to be saved. We have sinned enough this morning and we will sin enough before we get home today that we deserve eternal sin and death. We deserve to be cut off from you forever. And yet, Lord, you have not only set in motion, but accomplished the reconciliation of yourself and your people by the work of your Son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we thank you. We thank you every day. May no day pass, O oh Lord, that we would forget the price for which we have been bought. The infinite price of the blood of the perfect Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. May we declare that truth everywhere and anywhere whether we are given the opportunity or not, may we declare that truth. May we be obnoxiously in love with you, desiring to proclaim you in whatever and any situation. And may we live in light of the hope that we have been given. May we live our lives in obedience to you, not because we are earning your grace which has been given to us because you have done all of the work that we could not do. So why would we not do whatever we can do by your grace? May we glorify you with the works of our hands. May we glorify you with the words of our mouths. May we glorify you with the thoughts of our minds and of our hearts. And when we fail to do so, or when we speak the exact opposite of the truth that we were created to speak, may we turn to you in confession, for you have called us to confess our sins before you and that you would be faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And Lord, if there are any who have not yet known the beauty of that hope, the incredible news of 
that truth. Open our eyes. Let us see it. If we even have been worshiping you from children, open again our eyes to be renewed in the hope of the good news of the gospel, the good news that started in the curse you brought against the serpent, that one day you would crush his head. Lord, you are good. We are thankful that you have saved us, that you have reconciled us to yourself, and that you have given us a new family and a new body with which to gather to declare that and to celebrate the good news. And as we go from this place, as we go into a time of fellowship in the foyer, as we go downstairs for our Sunday school time, may we continue to declare that news and to glorify you in all that we say and all that we do. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now with the blessing of the psalmist, we go forth this morning. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud or go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord, my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. We will proclaim and tell of them, yet they're more than can be told. So church, go and glorify God that he has given us this truly good news. The news that sin needs no longer define us, that death needs no longer define us, that we might be defined by our love for the brotherhood and our dependence upon the finished work of Christ. Tell of the wondrous deeds of your God from now until forever, for you will never have enough time to declare it.